Bobby Braddock has written number one songs in five consecutive decades and has written 13 number one songs in total. He is a member of the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and in 2015 was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Many of his songs have become country music standards covered by bands all over the world. He's been nominated for the Country Music Association Song of the Year six times and has won it twice. Born in the Citrus Farm Country near Orlando, Florida, he began playing piano in rock and roll bands before migrating to Nashville in the early 60s, where he became the touring piano player in Marty Robbins' band. There, he began writing songs that were recorded, and the rest is the stuff of legends. Welcome to Backstory Song, and I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today I have the thrill and honor to have with me Bobby Braddock, who in 1981 was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, at the time the youngest inductee ever, 2011 inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, 2015 the Songwriters Hall of Fame, has won countless awards, has had a number one song in five different decades. He has written three books. The first is Down in Orbindale, A Songwriter's Youth in Old Florida, about his uh, childhood upbringing. The second, which I can encourage all the Backstory Song listeners to download at an Amazon store near you, called A Life on Nashville's Music Row, which really describes the history of songwriting and music in Nashville over five, six decades from 1964 when Bobby arrived there on. And his newest book, uh, Country Music's Greatest Lines. Bobby, welcome. And why don't you tell us about your newest book here? Welcome. My pleasure to do this. Appreciate you having me. The second book, uh, people trying to find this, it wasn't my idea. It was the publisher's idea that the title actually includes my name is Bobby Braddock, A Life on Nashville's Music Row. The new book, Country Music's Greatest Lines, just came out the past couple of weeks. I have a collaborator on this book. Her name is Carmen Beecher, and she's a world-class illustrator. You open up the book, on the left side, you'll see a narrative I've written about what I consider one of the great lines in country songs. And I write a narrative about the line or about the writer or about the song and sometimes about the artist and then on the right page is an illustration because with each one of these narratives i had this vision for what i wanted to be there and i'd tell her about it i'd email what the next topic was and specifically what i wanted her to draw sometimes i'd send along pictures from the internet to direct her towards what i wanted the drawing to be and she blew me away every time it always looked better and I saw it even than it was in my mind. So the pictures are amazing, Bobby. She is really a gifted illustrator and I had the joy and luck to get to see a preview copy. It was released this week and so it is available. Country's music greatest lines. And Bobby, you're so humble. Um of course you didn't put 
any of your own greatest lines in the book other than a song that you and one of your longtime songwriting partners consciously tried to write the worst country song ever, I believe. Is that right? That's the only song of yours that's in there? I thought it was, yeah, a lot of people said, well, you can't write a book like that without putting your own songs in there. And my response to that is it would just look like a big ego trip if I had a book titled Country Music's Greatest Lines and put my lines in there. I wouldn't do that. And I thought, one way I can put one of my songs in there is to put this song that is so bad that nobody would take me seriously and did that and had some fun with it. And my co-writer and very good friend, Rafe Van Hoy, I did not send this picture along to him. I was afraid he would not let me to put it in there. That it was, it had the same effect on him that it did on me. I was trying to find the song on Spotify so I could listen to it and include it in Backstory Songs discussion here, but I actually couldn't find a recorded version of it out there. I don't know if it's the worst song ever written, but it sure is a contender. An avalanche of romance, a landslide of love. We got off our big rocks with one little shove. An earthquake, for God's sake, a hurricane of heartaches, an avalanche of romance, a landslide of love. (laughs) Well, Bobby, you know what I would like to do? If you enjoyed doing this Backstory Song podcast, I would love to do another podcast where we talk about the different chapters or the different pages and the different songs that you picked out and maybe do a deep dive discussion on those songs because they clearly inspired you, inspired your work, you admired the artists, the writers, and each song in its own unique way influenced you. And I think that would be really fun for our listeners if you'd be up for doing that. I'd love to do that. Great. Well, then that's a date. But here on Backstory, we are only talking about songs that Bobby Braddock's written. Before we get on that, I'll just say this. If you're interested in songs and songwriters, I think you might enjoy reading this book. Absolutely, you will. I did. And I can encourage all my listeners to buy it and download it. It's available on Amazon. And the chapters are by decades. So this is something for those who like classic country, Hank Williams and people like that. And it goes right up to present day with artists, writers like Taylor Swift and Eric Church. Alan Jackson. What I get back from most people is how it brought back old memories to them, you know, and then finding out something about the songs and the backstory on the songs that they that they love. So anyway, yes, yeah, I would love to do that sometimes. I mean, that that's its own episode or maybe multiple episodes for you. And I would be over the moon. Thank you. Country Music's Greatest Lines. That's the name of it, folks. I think you might like it. All right. So I did find your autobiography, Bobby Braddock, A Life on Nashville's Music Row, to be one of the best reads. I do read a lot of musical biographies, and it's one of the best I've ever read. Uh, It's got a ton of humorous stories. And I'd like to use kind of the framework of that in part for this discussion, because in that, it became clear to me that so many of your songs were inspired by the woman in your life, your loves, your relationships. So many of your songs are about relationships with the opposite sex. And I'd like to maybe use that as a framework. And in particular, you spent a lot of time in the autobiography talking about four women, your mother, your first wife, Sue, your second wife, Sparky, And most of all throughout the book is your daughter, 
Lauren, who his nickname was Jeep, which was eventually changed to Beep in the book. So I would like to find out if any of your songs were inspired by those four key women. And I imagine you were a bachelor for a while or still are a bachelor. And, and there's some other women who inspired other songs. Women seem to have been the muse for you in so many ways. I find it's probably the easiest way to write a song is to write from personal experience or the experience of people whom I know. To me, it's an easier way to write a song. I mean, you put your heart and soul into it, you know, rather than in, in business situation. But I think most songwriters are inspired by their own lives, you know. Yeah, my second wife, Sparky, yeah, at the time she was a really, really big deal to me. And I did, did write a few songs about her. Not everything I wrote. When I wrote with Sonny Throckmorton called, uh, it was a number one record by T.G. Shepard. I feel like loving you again. Sonny and I were trying to come up with something. And Sparky and I had been apart for a couple of three months. It's like we had been seeing each other. And she went back to her ex-husband. And I was totally out of touch with her and kind of devastated. Here I was writing a song with Sonny. And the front desk said, the phone call from you said it's Sparky. So, of course, I took the call, and she wanted to see me. So I hung up the phone, exhilarated. I told Sonny, I said, uh, I feel you coming back again. That's what we wrote. And the song, when we finished it, was, I feel you coming. I feel you coming. I feel you coming back again. And we were pretty happy with the song. And then Sonny called me up and he said, Puddin? He called everybody Puddin. Puddin? I was talking to my wife and she thinks nobody would record that. Thinks it, it sounds pretty obscene. <laughs> it's too dirty. <laughs> yeah. And, and I said, well, what would we do? He said, how about, I feel like loving. I feel like loving you again. And I didn't like it nearly as much, but I thought that he and his wife, you know, probably right, you know, it would be hard to get it recorded. So that's how we came up with, with that title. Well, that song, of course, went to number one. So I guess it was a good change. One of the things I love about that song, which is I noticed a signature of a lot of your work is the introductions to the actual words. And this has a beautiful piano intro. And I was kind of wondering, you know, did that come first? Did that come second? You know, a lot of writers write the melody first and then the lyrics and some write vice versa. And some say it comes to them in combination and some say it depends on the song. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit of all of that with me. Mostly, typically, if I get an idea, that germ, that seed planted, I'll sit down at the keyboard and I'll start playing something. I mean, I came to town as a piano player. Yeah, you started in a rock and roll band in Florida. Right. What was the name of the band? Untouchables? Big John's Untouchables. Big John's Untouchables. And so I guess you weren't Big John. You had a front man, right? No, I wasn't Big John. I was, I was little Bobby. And then you ended up getting a tryout to be Marty Robbins' piano player. Yeah, I played piano for him. That was my first real gig in Nashville. I came to town thinking, I can probably make a living as a piano player in Nashville, but can I really be a songwriter? And Marty liked my songs, 
and he could accompany my songs. So I thought, huh, I guess I am a songwriter. And that gave me the incentive to really double down on that. So after a year and a half with Marty, I asked him if it was okay with him. I'm going to quit the road and pursue my songwriting career. I want to stick on the female-inspired, muse-inspired songs. And you mentioned Her Name Is, which is one of my favorite Bobby Braddock songs. And in this song, the guitar is like a lyric. And it's a guitar sound that like, so I sort of never heard. Yeah, it was actually a clavinet on the record. Oh, it was a clavinet. Oh, okay. The, the genius producer, Billy Sherrill. Probably 30% of the hits I wrote were produced by Billy Sherrill. He was it's a godsend to me, I tell you. Yeah, you talk about him a lot in your book. He was a fairly private guy, right? Oh, very private. I was one of the few that was allowed into his inner sanctum. He was not a people person. He was pretty much of an introvert. He let me in, and boy, I took advantage of it, too. He sure cut a bunch of my songs. He was kind of a Don Rickles sort of guy. When he was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame, they interviewed me on the way in there, and I said that, Billy Sherrill hadn't been at the Don Rickles of Nashville. He probably would have gotten in the Country Music Hall of Fame a lot sooner. Don Rickles, he said, that, is that the guy that gets no respect? I said, no, that's Ronnie Dangerfield. People respect you, Billy. Don Rickles is the guy who insults everybody. And Billy's wife said, isn't that the truth? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes, yes. Sir. So did, did you, when you wrote Her Name Is, did you envision this instrument being part of the lyric i mean because it's such a oh yeah that's why that's why that was the little stick of that song was this guy was having having an affair with someone who was married and couldn't say her name so the guitar would play whenever her name was mentioned or in any of her physical traits or whatever might which might give her away the guitar playing that her name is down to down her eyes are down Hair is just like down, down, and she measures down, down, down. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sparky. I had, I had my own version for her. She get a kick out of her hair is just like seaweed, and she, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> you actually put in words for the down and owls, huh? It was uh, almost surreal. She was in town, and we went down to George Jones nightclub, Possum Holler, and he was in town and happened to be performing that night. If we walked in the door, what was he singing? But her name is, which was his current record. I introduced her to Jordan. I said, this is the girl I wrote that song about. And everybody thought, you know, her name is Tammy. They thought it was about Tammy Wynette. Uh, people thought that he stopped loving her today was about Tammy, you know. Right, right. They thought George wrote it about Tammy. So you have been writing journals and keeping a diary for most of your life and you rate the songs on a one to 10 scale after you write them, I guess, or so shortly after you write them in your journals and he stopped loving her today. You gave a seven. I'm very interested in hearing about the songs that you gave a nine or a 10 on this, but the world kind of disagreed with your scoring on that one on he stopped loving her and pretty much gave that song a 10 you know why, Doug? I think it's because uh, I thought when we wrote it that, that it was a good song. I didn't think it was a great song. And I think Carly was the same. Carly Putman, my co-writer, the same way. I felt that 
that both Curly and I had written better songs than that. I think George Jones' performance and Billy Sherrill's production took that song up a few notches. When I went in to hear it, I went in there with Curly, and Billy was going to play it. And I was more interested in hearing this song, other song that George recorded. It's a song of mine that a lot of people recorded. It's called Where They Live Down in Shreveport. And I was glad to get the cut on He Stopped Loving Her Today. It was not a song that was way up there on my radar. And then when Billy played it for us, oh, my God. I mean, I knew that there was something really special in it then. I think there's something in the song that I wasn't seeing. I think more than anything else, I think the singer and the producer elevated that song. George's performance is chilling. Mm. This one has an acapella intro, which is a different thing for you. Did you write it that way or did Billy Sherrill produce that? That was Billy Sherrill. That was not one of my demos that sounds like a record that people went, that, that was just a little simple, very, very, where I played everything on it except the drums. And it was just a little simple demo. And the song evolved a lot after that original demo. This was before there was even a recitation. And that was Billy's idea, I think, just to start it out with, he said, I love you, which became, you know, quite a signature. Yeah. But I do think that your songs have signature starts to them, whether it's a piano intro or the guitar lick that is laid down, or in this case, the acapella intro. When you hear it, you're like, that's the Bobby Braddock song that I love. It's just, I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. Yes, sir, because I, I feel like, I think producers have different strengths and weaknesses. And as a producer, I have my weaknesses. I think my strength is, is as an arranger. So sticking on the theme of female-inspired songs, you had three number ones with Faking Love, Texas Tornado, and D-I-V-O-R-C-E. And I guess those song titles sort of tell the story. <laughs> now, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, I was uh, working on a song called I-L-O-V-E-Y-O-U. Do I have to spell it out for you? And I somehow stumbled across the D-I-V-O-R-C-E thing and wrote it, went in and cut a demo on it. Of course, I know you have a lot of songwriter listeners, and they know what a demo is for those who don't. That's it's a demonstration of the song. You try to make a song sound as much like a record as possible to pitch to the A&R people or the producers or the artists themselves. So did a demo on D-I-V-O-R-C-E and had high hopes for it, but nobody nobody recorded. And I finally asked Curly, I said, I wonder why we're not getting any takers on that. He said, he said Bobby he said, honestly, I think not all over, just in a couple of spots there, the song sounds too happy for a sad song. Looking back on it, I think it sounds kind of like a soap commercial. So here's what I had. Most of the song was okay. When I got around the title line, and we had the same melody on the verse too, and it's the last line of the verse and the last line of the chorus. On the chorus, what I had was, Oh, I wish that we could stop this D-I-V-O-R-C-E. He said, I think that sounds too happy. I said, well, what would you do? So he picked up his guitar. He had the most mournful voice. He was a great singer. And he, oh, boy, he was a sad singer. And he said, oh, I wish that we could stop this D-I-V-O-R-C-E. I said, let's get it on tape like that. So Curly with his guitar and with the piano. 
and I set the pen and did the thing that they used on the record. I went boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and we did it with that new sad part. And Curly said, he said, well, I didn't hardly do anything of this. I'm not going to take any part of this. I said, Curly, you've changed it. And you've made this a song probably that somebody would record. I think you should take half of it. So we compromised and he took one fourth of it. Well, you describe in your book that Curly is one of the greatest song pluggers. And I didn't realize how important song plugging is until I read your book. You know, tell me what that is and tell me what that means and tell me why Curly Putnam was one of the greatest song pluggers around. Song plugger way, 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 way back before the days of radio where back in New York, the publishing companies would have a song plugger who would take the songs around to get the people to sing in the bars and cabarets, you know, the word of mouth for songs to get around. In modern times, a lot of things have changed, but when I got to town, song pluggers were the ones who got the songs and took them out and tried to get them recorded and played them for the record label people or the producers or the artists. And that's still what they call. They're still called song pluggers. A lot of times songwriters turn into song pluggers. A lot of my songs, eventually I got recorded myself. You were the song plugger on them. Yeah, I got Time Marches On recorded. I want to talk about me. I got that recorded. But in the early days, Curly got a lot of the songs recorded. And the publisher, Buddy Killen, he was a great song plugger himself. As soon as Curly became a part of the song and elevated it and just made it a lot more cuttable, before they had the Grammy shows in Nashville, they used to Neris, which is the organization behind the Grammys, used to have it like a dinner in Nashville. It was just a dinner. Maybe have a little local awards. It wasn't like the Grammy night. It was like a local thing. And I saw Billy Sherrill there. I didn't know him as well then because this is early in my career. I told him, I said, uh, this song, I think, would be really good for Tim. He he had cut some of my songs, so he you know he knew who I was and he knew my songs and and we knew each other fairly well, but not as nearly as well as we would eventually. And he said, "Get it to me, bring it to me tomorrow." And interview, he says that when he heard that song, that he threw everything else he had in the garbage can. Curly and I went by there and we left it there with his with his assistant, and he called and told us that he's going to cut it on Tammy Whitnett. That was my first number one record. Do you remember it rising in the charts and the day it was number one? And do you remember your number one party? I imagine a lot of those number one parties you f <laughs> might forget by the end of the evening. I think that was pre-number one party. They didn't do them back then, yeah. When did those things start? I say they started in the 70s. Yeah, I say they started in the 70s. Because I don't recall a number one party for DWRC. I do recall my first wife and I were with these two other couples in our age group eating at a meet and three place in Lawrenceville Road in Nashville. And that came on the jukebox. And I said, this is a song I co-wrote, and I think it's going to be a really big hit. I remember that. I had Tammy Wynette's biggest hit of all time until her follow-up record was Stand By Your Man. <laughs> so I always had her second biggest hit. My favorite Tammy Wynette song, and I wrote about this in the book, and that was uh, the line that, that I chose was, I just keep on falling in love till I get it right. And my story about that song was how I happened to stumble into a room while Red Lane and Larry Henley were writing that song. And Larry says, hey, Brad, what do you think about this? And he sang that, and I said, I think I need to get out of here and let you guys finish that song. And then 
illustrator Carmen, I had her draw a picture of a coffee table, supposedly at Tammy Wynette's house, and it had about seven or eight pictures on it, and there, it was Tammy and all her husbands, plus her famous lover, like Burt Reynolds. Anyway, but D-I-V-R-C, and you mentioned faking love, and there was another one you mentioned. What was that? Texas Tornado, which was about a girlfriend of yours, I read. You went out with a lot of volatile women, I would say. You had tumultuous women, and maybe that led to tumultuous relationships. I think a lot of times I was a volatile myself, you know. We dated for a couple of years, and we're still very good friends. It was not literally about her, but she inspired the song because she was born in Texas, and she had a big thing about tornadoes. She always said she would have loved to have been a tornado chaser. Oh, my goodness. I thought you were going to say she was afraid of them. No, she liked to chase them. Oh, no, she loved them. You know, a lot of times, I mean, when you split up with somebody, you do, but you don't completely. It takes a while. You still kind of hang on to each other and hang out, you know. And she came by my house, and I sang it for her. And she was always very direct. I mean, she loved something. She would be enthusiastic about it. If she wasn't, she would let her feelings be known. I sang the song for her, and she said, I don't think people maybe won't like that song. Maybe it was because it was about, she thought, Knew it was sort of about her. When they had the number one party, the A&R guy told me that Tammy came up to him and said, Hi, I'm the tornado. After the hit, I think she liked it better. <laughs> I think some guys are attracted to that, and that would scare some guys off, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yours, you started off with Ruthless, and you can't have your Kate and Edith to a bunch of these in that vein. And actually, my favorite of all of those is the one that Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood did, which went to number two in the UK, but didn't chart here. Did you ever? It was like an almost hit by Charlie Levin and Melba Montgomery and Lee Hazelwood, who was Nancy Sinatra's producer and sometimes duet partner. Heard that on the country station in L.A. So they recorded that pretty much same arrangement as the Charlie Lou and Melvin Montgomery record. And when I wrote it, I did a little whistle thing. And on the Charlie Lou and Melvin Montgomery thing, they used the flute playing my whistle. And then Nancy Sinatra cut it. They did the same thing. Nothing in the U.S., but it was a big hit in the U.K., when I met Paul McCartney, my publisher was reeling off the titles of the songs I written. Paul was being polite. He said, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. I could tell he didn't recognize any of the titles. And I said, I had a thing that was uh, hit in the UK. Did you ever? He said, Bobby, you wrote that? You wrote that? And I was thinking, here's this guy who's written more hit songs than anybody in the world. I mean, how could he possibly be impressed with that silly little song? You know, <laughs> But it was. It was a big hit in the UK. It's a clever song. And you met Paul and Linda, and they stayed in at Curly Putnam's farm? Yeah. My publisher, Buddy Killen, his attorney, or the attorney for Tree, was not a Nashville attorney. It was Lee Eastman in New York. That's Linda Eastman McCartney's father. So when Paul decided he wanted to come to the U.S. and wanted to hang out in Nashville and get to know Nashville a little better, he asked his father-in-law, said, can you set me up with somebody there? And he said, well, a client of mine is the biggest publisher in town down there. So happened that Curly Putman and his wife, Bernice, and their kids, they were playing 
a trip to Hawaii. And they were also going to go to Japan. I don't think they actually did go to Japan, but that was part of their, their plan. And they had planned to be gone for a few weeks. But he said, how would you feel about leasing your house out to the McCartneys? And that's what happened. Carly's name was Claude Putman Jr. So Paul started calling Curly Jr. And he referred to the house they were staying in as Junior's Farm. And he wrote the song Junior's Farm, which was one of his big hits with wings. So he wrote that about Curly's house. I actually put this in the comedy genre for you is I want to talk about me, which Toby Keith took to number one. Funny thing about that song is there were two inspirations. One, I started producing Blake, and he was going around doing this dirty little rap song. And to this day, I don't know if he wrote it or if it's something that he heard on the radio. Do you remember the lyrics he was singing? Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, talk about obscene. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was dirty. <laughs> but hearing Blake with his white boy Oklahoma twang doing a rap thing was hilarious. I thought, I need to write a rap song for, kind of like a lot of rap, not kind of, I'm a big Eminem fan. Oh, wow. He's got a lot of anger in him, but that anger goes into energy in those songs. And he's a musical rapper. He writes melodies too. At that time, I was just very much into Eminem. Wow, that's news. That's a real breaking story on Backstory Song that Bobby Braddock is into Eminem. This is widely considered the first or one of the earliest country rap songs. Well, there were two country rap songs that were big hits. That was one, and the other was Dirt Road Anthem, which I love. I think it was real rap. It was about the hood. I mean, albeit white rural hood, but it was still about the hood. And mine, I was just using rap as a vehicle to write a funny song. So I don't know if mine's really rap or not. Toby swears that it's not. He said, so you say it's a rap song. The guy who wrote that wrote, he stopped blowing today, but it's rap in its presentation. So I went to write a rap song for Blake. And I had a very close friend. And I don't know, she's probably my best friend. We're just very, very close. What's her name? Deborah Allen? No, no. This is Kathy Locke. She is a therapist, a clinical counselor. She has a pretty large practice there and several people working for her. So it's always good to have a friend who's, who's a shrink. <laughs> At the time, this is before she was doing that. And she was working for, it was like an, ad agency and she had someone in her office who had been laid off or fired or something it was her assistant so that doubled her workload and that's all she could talk about it's like when she focuses on something she focuses on that one thing and in a way it's an endearing thing but at that time i was wanting to tell her about something but all i could get out of her was about her assistant not being there and her workload and that's all she could talk about so after that phone call I sat down and started to write, I want to talk about me for change, you know? And it turned into the rap song that I wanted to write for Blake. I called up Kathy and played it for her, and she didn't she didn't say anything. And she called me the next day, and she said, that song yesterday, did you write that about me? I said, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so I cut it on Blake, and the label there got pretty excited about it, and then they did finger quotes research. And the research came back that not only would this not be a good single, it shouldn't even be on an album. Nobody liked this song. That song had come persona non grata around the label. Blake started out on Giant, 
He didn't stay there long. Giant folded just as his first hit single was racing up the charts. He had a hit racing up the charts and no label because they shut down about the time that the record came out. Fortunately, Warner Brothers picked him up, and so his career has been with Warner Brothers ever since. So since Blake wasn't going to cut this song, they didn't want to use what I did on Blake. I knew I was going to have to pitch it. And the song plugger at the publishing company had played it for an A&R person at Toby's label. She passed on it. She denies this. This is the way my song plugger told it to me. The A&R person said, that not only am I passing on this song, I hate this song. <laughs> Toby cut a song called Get You Some, which is kind of a rap. So I thought he would be a natural for this. And I knew if I was going to get it to Toby, I couldn't do it through the A&R person. And his producer, James Stroud, at that time, he produced so many people, he absolutely would not listen to songs. Yet his A&R people do that. I thought Stroud will not listen to a song. I ran into him at a convenience store at 7-Eleven Market, and I had him in a corner. <laughs> Just trapped. James, if you can give me about three or four minutes, I've got a song I think you'll like for Toby. And he kind of sighed, got out of his flip phone, called his assistant, said, Find me five minutes somewhere to hear a Bobby Braddock song. I went and played it for him. He came over his desk. He actually jumped over his desk and grabbed me. He said, man, he said, this is a monster. And he called up Toby, played it for him over the phone, just hearing it over the phone. Toby says, I'll cut that song, bitch. And he did, and it uh, was number one for, for five weeks. Wow, wow. And at the number one party, I have to say the A&R person had a lot of integrity. And I have a lot of respect for this person. But this A&R person signed up next to the song plugger who pitched the song, which was turned down. And the A&R person told the song plugger, Terry Wakefield said, I still hate it. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you give that on your one to 10 scale when you wrote it? I would have given it more than a seven. I would have given so you, it. This is another seven for you. So your research is no better than the A&R research, it sounds like. <laughs> no, I said I would have given it more than a seven. No, I would have given it probably. And by this time, I don't think I was writing songs anymore. I would have given it probably a nine. You know, you were bullish on this one. I love the hard rock guitar intro on this because it's that's like part of your evolution. You, you know, you've your songs, or at least how they were produced, the lyrical content has evolved. But you know, here it still has your comedy, and it's a really funny song. I can understand why someone might get pissed and find it offensive because it's about an ego. I want to talk about me. Well, the people at my publishing company, all except the guy who was pitching for me, Terry Wakefield, all the other A&R people said, nobody's going to cut a song that has a line like, your medical charts, and when you start, said they're not going to play a song about a menstrual period. They're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, and it was a big hit. But Blake, he used to tell people, he said, what you're hearing comes out of Bobby's brain. But there was one exception. For years and years and years, from demo sessions, I used Brent Rowan on guitar. And when I started producing, I used him on those sessions. I used him on everything Blake did, everything that I did with Blake, rather. And I left a blank spot for Brent. Sometimes I have a suggestion, but he was so great at ear candy and coming up with stuff. I kind of left a blank spot and think, well, Brent will come up with something here. 
the signature lick on Time Marches On, which I think is important as any line or melody that I wrote in that song. That was Brent Rowan. And when Tracy was going to cut it, my very close friend, Don Cook, he produced a lot of people, Rex and Dunn, Alabama, and Tracy was going to cut the song. And I said, Cook, you got to get Brent Rowan to play that signature guitar thing. He says, I use Brent Mason. There were these two Brents in Nashville. I think they were pretty competitive. And both of them were guitar geniuses. I mean, they're both great. And my Brent was Brent Rowan. Cook's Brent was Brent Mason. And I said, Brent Rowan played this. He said, Brent Mason could play anything. Well, he did. He played it just like Brent Rowan. Then he added his own little thing to it, too. He slid up on a string and did it just a little bit differently. And, and I won't talk about me, same thing. Brent Rowan played it on my demo session, and Stroud used Brent Rowan. So he just went to the master session and played exactly what he did on the demo. Time Marches On, I think, is one of your most evolved songs. Obviously, went to number one. The world loved this song. The line that is in your book and is perhaps like reflective of the maturation and the evolution of Bobby Braddock as a songwriter from where he started in the 60s to today, the only thing that stays the same is everything changes, everything changes. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to say that's my favorite line in that song. People say, well, what's your favorite song you wrote in one you discussed with me in an email? which I think was maybe the best song I wrote, was a song called The Nerve, that George Strait recorded. It was never a single. Thing. But Time Marches On, that's my favorite hit. And tell me why. Like, Tell me what is it that you love about this song? Like, well, it's when two minutes and 40 seconds, it's the story of someone's life and their observations and the changes going on around them. There were a couple of things that inspired this. I come from a little town in central Florida, when I was growing up there, I mean, it was strictly Southern culture. Everyone there, I mean, the kids I went to school with, if they weren't born in, in South Georgia, South Alabama, or in the rural area of North Florida, their parents were. It was very, very deep Southern. When I was growing up, segregationist, I mean, it's just, it was pretty much deep South culture. By the time I wrote Time Marches On, as is true in all of the South, a lot of people in the Southern towns would move up north and work, maybe go to Detroit and work in the cars or something, or around Chicago, work in steel mills. So by the 1990s, a lot of people from up north were moving down and retired, especially since Disney World popped up about 30 miles from, from my hometown. Some of those people from the north moving in down there, it spilled over into my little town. And then a lot of the people in that town had moved out to go up north to find work. The line the South moves north, the North moves south. A star is born, a star burns out. The only thing that stays the same is everything changes. Everything changes. So that's where that came from. So the song kind of started really from a line in the bridge. There's another line there. Sister calls herself Sexy Grandma. My first, <laughs> first wife's sister had a tag on the back of her car that said Sexy Grandma. And I remember thinking that was kind of funny. I just stuck that in there. I thought you were talking about Betty White there. 
<laughs> Why did you think I was talking about Betty White? I'm just because she's the sexy grandma today. Well, <laughs> you know? Betty White is the sexy great 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 grandma. <laughs> <laughs> pushing 100 and still still doing good. I love how it starts with Hank Williams and goes to Bob Dylan. I love the Hammond organ that comes in on the Bob Dylan line. Did that on the demo session. Then Don Cook included that on, on the record. One thing that ended up on the record I had on the demo, when Hank Williams came in there, I had the steel guitar play Don Helmsley. I'm kind of a steel guitar aficionado. I love steel guitar. I'm glad to see they're coming back. I'm glad it's coming back. I love that sound. Tracy Lawrence, perfect artist for that song. I mean, he uh, just something about the character of the song that just fit Tracy Lawrence to a T. He's a great interpreter. I imagine you grew up listening to Hank Williams, and then you were in Nashville when Bob went there and recorded Nashville Skyline and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band famously showing up. You know, the rock and roll, long hair crowd showed up, and it took a while for everybody to understand they had the same musical vernacular, this invisible language in common. And that the mingling of the two, I mean, there's a good example of that is we we're talking earlier about Matresa, considering me her mentor and us writing it, it when she was 18. And she's married to the voice of Mr. Bojangles, the voice of the Nitty Gritty Birthday Band, uh, Jeff Hanna. And you mentioned Dylan, guy who came close to Dylan was steel guitar player named Pete Drake. Pete playing the steel on Lay Lady Lay. They became pretty close. And Pete had, he had a very active publishing company called Window Music. And Dylan told him, he said, I'd like to write with a Nashville songwriter. And he had some really good writers, but he decided the ideal person for Dylan to write with would be me. Wow. Oh, I love Pete. He was here. He died of emphysema long, long, long ago, but he was premier steel guitar player. He played simple, but wonderfully effective steel guitar. He was great. So he said, I told Dylan, I want you to write with him. I said, oh, my God. I said, I'll be scared to death. He said, well, he wants to write with you. And then I was just all juiced up about that. And he said, well, Bob says that I never co-write much. And I just... It's probably a mistake to co-write. He decided not to co-write. He was doing just fine on his own. <laughs> still writing, still came out with an album this year, you know. He wrote one of the few songs, I think, that actually had an impact on society. It rarely happens. That was uh, Blowing in the Wind. That actually had an impact on society and how they became involved in politics. And another one, of course, was We Shall Overcome. That was an old hymn. But Pete Seeger came up with his own version of it, and he actually sang it for Martin Luther King. And Dr. King said, you know, that's a good song. I mean, everything just fell in place. He said, that's a good song for the movement. And uh, and it became the theme song of the Civil Rights Movement. So there are a few songs that have an impact on, on society. Uh, God knows I none of mine do, and very, very rarely do songs have that kind of effect. So one of the songs that you wrote that is also part of your mature statement storytelling phase, it's not the novelty song, comedy song, and it's not per se woman-inspired, is The Nerve. And you got Blake Shelton to sing this at your beloved daughter's wedding. Yeah. 
Blake wasn't working much, and that's back when he'd do pretty much anything I asked him to do. <laughs> and he came there with his mullet and sang that song beautifully at her wedding. Yeah. Well, I know Brad Paisley's in love with this song. George Strait recorded it. And I think a Blake Shelton, Gwen Stefani duet on this would be out of this world if you want me as a song plugger, but that's not my job here. And I don't know what you think of that idea, if that's just crazy or dumb, because I do have dumb ideas. No, that's, you know, I mean, Blake knows that song, that's for sure. I ought to just write him and just float that idea. I wouldn't have to play him the song because he knows the song well. So th this is a song about legacy, lineage, family trees. You want inspired that song? What? A book. No person inspired that song. A song plugger named Walter Campbell gave me a book. It's called Einstein's Dreams. So what does a physicist dream about? His dreams were sort of like that in a way. It was about actually about Einstein's dreams. It was a fiction. And I was so inspired that the nerve really is, in, in a sense, is about physics in sort of an abstract way. It's a what-if song or a what-if-not song. I think a lot of critics didn't like it. I don't care. It's one of my favorite movies in subject matter. Gwyneth Paltrow is in it, and it's called Sliding Door. And this girl in London, she's going for a job interview, and she missed her bus because she didn't get to the door in time. It had slid shut. So she knew she missed the appointment, and she came back to her flat and found her lover there in bed with someone else. They split up. And it was a movie of alternatives, side-by-side -side plots. And she had gotten on the bus in time and hadn't come home and found him with the girlfriend. And the other plot was her coming home and finding him. And to make it easier, she was going to be independent. She split up with him and she cut her hair real short. So you knew which plot it was by the length of her hair. And it's what would have happened if she hadn't caught him in bed. And her life was different in every way except two things that happened in both lives. That had such an impact on me. I thought, wow, a broader thing would be what if I had not come to Nashville? If I had not played in Big John's Untouchables, I would not have met my first wife. There would not be a Jeep, my daughter. And what would my life have been like without her? I actually think that if you have sex with somebody, maybe an hour later and that person gets pregnant, that would be a totally different child born from that. Because the chances of any of us being here are minuscule. Yeah. Chances of any of us actually making it from the sex act to the delivery room are so infinitely small. And so we're privileged, you and I, to be inhabitants of this planet. You know, if being here is a privilege, then we are among the privileged. That set this what if thing going in my mind. And it really helps me understand, and I'm glad he had the nerve while staring into space to give this universe a time and a place with one tiny atom, or an atom and an Eve. However you look at it, whatever you believe. I took in the agnostics, and I took in the, the evangelicals, too. I had something for everybody. <laughs> yeah, such a very, very spiritual and contemplative verse. Well, it's funny that Tony Brown, Don Cook said, at this time, he was like a vice president to my friend Don Cook. He said, we got to play that for Tony Brown. So we took it over there, and Tony said, Song of the Year. 
Song of the Year. He just had a fit over it. Tony Brown cut it on straight. It was going to be the first single. And then they thought, well, the first single should be an up-tempo thing, and they would put this out. And then they thought, well, this is so different. We need Finally, it was going to be the last single, the album, and then it never even became a single. Fast forward, I was producing Blake. We're talking about some record or something we cut. And the promotion man for Warner Brothers at that time said, this reminds me of when I was doing promotion at MCA. And we had this song on George Strait. It was called The Nerve. I just let him talk. He said, boy, we effed up bad. He said, that's a, the best song I ever heard. It should have been a single. It should have been a single then. And he said, we kept putting it off and it never made it out. So I said, and I wrote that song. He said, are you serious? I said, yeah, that was mine. <laughs> it's still not over, Bobby. We're going to get you a number one out of this one. As my Jewish friends say, your mouth to God's ears. Your daughter, Lauren Jeep, she's been instrumental in keeping you going and inspired. Did you ever write a song about her? One, one called Baby Blue Eyes. I wrote about her when she was 12. And did sort of a little video, made a little movie. I don't think it was really something I thought was of commercial value. I didn't write it, go out and get it recorded. I wanted to write a song about her. And that's, and I haven't heard that song in ages. I need to get that down and listen to it. All right, well, you'll send me a demo on that one. And you used to, your book says you used to take videos of her. Well, what I was doing was like videos, and I would take songs that were already out and, and, and do what actually what they were doing in videos. And the, the, head of, the head of all the sun bloggers at the publishing company, who was the creative director, he said, we need to do those, and you produce them and just get a professional a cinematographer to do these and sell them to record labels to put out with the songs. So this was probably about a year or two before MTV or CMT. And there was an idea he had. It was way ahead of his time. He couldn't get anybody on board with it. They thought, eh, you know, but, but he was, he was a visionary and that's, that's what I was doing then. Yeah. And so did you do a video of this song about Lauren? I did. Okay, I can't wait to see that. We got to get that uh, up on YouTube. Oh, I wish. I wish. it's. We'll get that edited up and we'll get it out there on YouTube. I don't know where it is. It's, it's gone. It's, it's oh. But I do have do have the recording of it. It's a demo. It's a, the catalog at my publishing company. It's an actual song. So, so I can get that for you. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. So we haven't talked about your number one golden ring. We probably should cover that, don't you think? Usually I don't write something for an artist specifically in mind, but in that case, I did. I thought there was an old gospel group called the Chuck Wagon Gang that I really liked. It was very churchy sounding, like old-fashioned country churchy sounding. I thought about writing a song like that for George and Tammy, something that just had that old-fashioned uh, southern gospel sound to it. I got hung up on it. And I called up Curly Putman and asked, so I got this song. I said, it's not a lot to write, but it's just not finished, you know. And Curly said, I'm just going to hang around the farm today. About that time, Rafe Van Hoy came in the front door at Tree Publishing Company. I said, hey, buddy, I got this song story. You want to finish it with me? He said, yeah. It was like late Friday afternoon and what time to put anything together for a demo session. So I told Rafe, who was a great musician, I said, why don't you 
put together a little demo. Of it. I said, you know what the chuck wagon gang sounds like? He said, yeah, I've heard some of that. I said, well, make it sound like that. Get there, do a group sing, your bass with it, sing your high tenor part, make give it that old country gospel sound. And he did. Boy, his little demo he put together, it is amazing. It's almost as good as George and Tammy's record. It is so good. And he cut this great version on it. And that thing was on the radio about a month after that. That's the quickest a song ever went from the pen to the radio. That would never happen now. What I like about that song is this incredible guitar run intro, that lick. Billy Sherrill produced a great record on that. Because he knew how to do that because his father was a Baptist preacher. He was brought up with church music. So that was a natural for him to produce. George and Tammy, oh my God, they just sang me so great on it. What talent. Billy Sherrill used to, he would change my songs. If somebody changed your song, they asked permission. Billy Sherrill did. He just changed it anyway. If he didn't like it, he better. And usually it was to the better. I disagree with him on Golden Rain. What they had was a small two-room apartment as they fight their final round. The way we wrote it was, you won't admit it, but I know you're running around. Billy told me, he says, you can't rhyme round with round. I said, one is final round, is the other is running round. He said, it's still the same. It sounds like the same word. And he wanted to put, I know you're leaving town. I said, Billy, I said, on an emotional scale, leaving town is maybe a five. I know you're running around. It's a 10. She's out there screwing around on it, and it's, and it's killing it. You know? I know you're leaving town. That sounds like maybe maybe you're going down to Louisville you know, to make a sale or something. The amazing thing about it is I have never cheated on someone myself. And anybody I've ever told that I was in a committed thing with them, I was always true to it. The only time I ever ran around was my first wife. She was already running around. She and I had no physical relationship anymore. And I would say, okay, well, you're having an affair. I'm going to have one too. No, you're not. And she does. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> How's that fair? We <laughs> were a husband abuser. He used to beat the shit out of me. And so to keep the family together, I had to be secretive with her. So I was running around on her, but not cheating on her because she and I hadn't, there was nothing between us. It was, it was gone. It was a bad, a bad, 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 bad marriage from which we got a wonderful child. So I, you got a wonderful child, Lauren. I do it all, I do it all over again. But anyway, what I was saying, I have never cheated on anyone, but I have been with people who cheated to be with me. I had a friend used to tell me, say, that's hypocritical. And I'm starting to think, well, she's probably right. Did that inspire Golden Ring? Someone cheating on you? Or do you see that as part of life? Like people do that? Yeah, I don't think I wrote any of me into that song. It was just the idea came from I saw it. There was a made from TV movie. It was a biography of a gun. It was a handgun. I think it belonged to a cop. And then a bad guy got it and it ended up in a pawn shop. And the last scene in the movie, the people had hid the gun up on the mantle in the house. And it showed a little three-year-old kid standing on a chair, reaching up to get the gun. And that was the last scene in it. But I thought, why not do a song that's a biography of a little wedding band? The history of it, you know, and it, it starts out and ends up in a pawn shop, in a pawn shop in Chicago. I love that because a pawn shop is where, you know, there's stuff that people didn't want anymore. Or, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then someone finds it and wants it, and the song is so well-structured. It's this ring of life, this ring of marriage. 
it ends up back in the pawn shop. And I was wanting to put together a musical at that time, I was telling you, and it's going to be about like a family who moved up from the South or from Appalachia to Chicago, you know, just poor country people from, you know, I thought this would be ideal song for my musical, which never came around. A musical, I think, to me, was the vehicle to write songs, and that was the important thing. You know? So I don't regret that I never wrote a musical. I'd rather write books than write music. Well, you're a good book writer, Bobby, and so why don't we close out by one last plug for your new book. Country Music's Greatest Lines by Bobby Braddock, illustrated Carmen Beecher. These Carmen Beecher illustrations are just incredible. Each one tells a story, just like the songs that they're about. You look at the pictures, you're like, oh my God, that's what the song is about. It's They're lifelike. I went to her website. She sells her art, her paintings. And I saw a sketch that she did. She put on her Facebook page. And ironically, she did it four or five years ago. It's of John Lewis, the civil rights leader who passed away the other day. And I've never seen a photograph of him that captured the determination, the integrity, the righteous indignation, everything is in that picture. There are pictures of songwriters illustrating there. There are song characters that made up that I had to draw. But there's quite a few pictures of celebrities, too. As a template for her to draw the pictures of the celebrities, rather than her draw just one picture, and it could have violated a copyright thing, I would give her several. And she would see these several pictures and draw her picture from those. And anybody who sees these pictures, they immediately know in a nanosecond who it is. I mean, because they're very lifelike. Anyway, thanks for letting me plug my book. And thanks for sharing the backstory of your songs with us, Bobby Braddock. We're really grateful to have you. And thank you to our listeners. And special shout out to my social media director, Cameron Grace, and my recording engineer, Wyatt Schmidt. You can find Wyatt's music on his new uh, YouTube channel, DJ Wyatt Schmidt. And I encourage everybody to go listen to that. You are a great interviewer. A great interviewer makes the interviewee look 